0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. Well, as you just heard and as I mentioned earlier this week, our next verse in the Gospel of Luke, it just sort of comes out of nowhere. Like a flash of lightning in a clear sky, Jesus just drops this bomb about divorce and remarriage. From chapter 16 verse 18 but it's so brief that we're also going to look at what Jesus says in Matthew 19 1 through 12 I don't need to tell you um, that this is an incredibly sensitive topic that impacts the lives of everyone here and really everyone who will ever visit incarnation committed marriages and nuclear families are the building block of any culture and in the U.S., this time-tested institution is really crumbling before our eyes. If statistics hold, then roughly half of us um, come from divorced families. Uh, many of you have had to navigate all or part of your lives um, s- with separated parents. Children traveling from one house to another. And, uh, or, or, or worse, maybe you've lost touch with one parent altogether. I know that's the case for some of you. I also know that it's the case that some of you have gone through painful divorces yourselves. And if you were Christians at the time, you may have wrestled through some of the very passages and issues we'll be discussing today. C.S. Lewis writes about divorce. He says, Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a body as a kind of surgical operation. He says, some of them consider it to be so violent that it cannot be done at all. And others allow it only as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. But they're all agreed that it's more like having both your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or deserting a regiment. And this is very graphic imagery, is it not? He says, divorce is more extreme than leaving a business partnership. It's not just a fiscal thing. He says it's more extreme than even abandoning your fellow soldiers on the front line. It's not just a matter of betrayal. According to Lewis, it's more like amputation. In other words, like taking something that's been formed and fused together by our Creator and then severing it in this unnatural way. Divorce is so common in our culture and even in the church, and none of us remains untouched by these difficult realities. So how should the church, the Bride of Christ, respond to this complex situation? Unfortunately, I think we've tended to opt for three unhelpful solutions. The first is condemnation. Right? Um, in other words, heaping shame upon people or treating divorce as just sort of like the unpardonable sin. There's a member of my extended family who, in the 1960s, she was ostracized because her husband left her with four children. She didn't want to be left by her husband, but it just happened. And her local church just didn't know how to deal with that. They didn't know how to deal with this divorced woman. And so she was ostracized from her congregation. So condemnation, that's one way that we deal with it. Another way that the church has dealt with this is resignation. That's just resigning ourselves to the idea that this is just the way the world is. So let's just, you know, go ahead and perform marriages and remarriages that Jesus forbids. But resignation to the current state of affairs is not the truth of the gospel. Finally, and maybe most commonly, the church has tried to deal with this issue through avoidance—just never addressing the issue, you know, for for fear that we'll offend people or lose members. And then, so we're just sort of trusting the sheep to pastor themselves. We don't give them any information, any insight. I was talking to a young man a few years ago, um, a former Christian. Who had been struggling for many years with same-sex attraction. And he said to me, um, part of the thing that bothers me so much is that the church seems fixated on this sin of homosexuality. And yet there's all kinds of heterosexual young people, like, cohabitating outside of marriage. And he said, and, 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 then, and then there's all kinds of marriages being performed in the church that Jesus calls adultery. And, you know, I, you know, I, I thought, man, like, I, I sympathize with you. I, I told them I thought those were fair questions, fair issues to raise. And, and really, since that time, I've heard those same questions and same issues raised more and more. More and more. The point is that the church needs to stick to the Word of God with consistency. Right? So to pick and choose what Bible passages we want to be serious about can come across as selective bigotry. So condemnation... Resignation avoidance. I'm convinced that Jesus speaks a better word than all that. Amen? Amen. Amen. I've often wondered how Jesus would interact with this topic in our culture today, with all its complexities. But You know, the Gospel of John actually records that Jesus once had an interaction with a Samaritan woman who had multiple husbands. And she was cohabitating with a man who was not her husband. It sounds a little bit like the world we live in, does it not? And Jesus crosses ethnic and cultural and gender barriers to bring this woman the grace of God. The woman tries to evade the topic of her multiple marriages and her sexual lifestyle. But Jesus confronts her with the elephant in the room. Right? He confronts her in a gentle And prophetic way. But here's the thing. In the end, did she go away from that interaction feeling condemned? I mean, that could have been the case. She could have said, I'm not giving up my boyfriend for Jesus. But no, somehow she went away rejoicing, sharing her testimony, transformed by the power of God. And I think that's Jesus' heart toward This culture, when it comes to divorce and remarriage, he wants to bring both grace and truth. Not graceless truth or truthless grace, which aren't really truth and isn't really grace. Jesus brings truth in the validity and healthiness of his commands. If we're going to understand God's heart on this topic, or indeed any topic, we have to get past the notion of thinking of the commands as just sort of like arbitrary rules. Tim Keller says God's commands are never busy work, right? These are our creator's instructions for how he assembled the human machine. How it's supposed to work. How we work best as individuals, in families, and in communities. That's what God's commands are intended to show us. It's like an owner's manual for a car. J.R.R. Tolkien says that divorce, certainly divorce as it's now legalized, is a misuse of the human machine, causing injuries to ourselves, other people in society, just as certainly as alcoholism does the same. So if we really want to love people, it's not simply a matter of blind affirmation. It must involve truth. We have to take seriously what our Creator says about humanity, the human machine, and what it means to flourish together but Jesus also offers grace, right? He offers grace. Oh, praise the Lord that he offers grace to those who have failed but are willing to turn and get back on the path, right, just like he does with this Samaritan woman and so many others. And so I wonder, as the church of this man filled with grace and truth, as the church of Jesus Christ, are we ready to have a grace filled and truthful conversation about divorce and remarriage. To deal with questions like, is my understanding of divorce and remarriage the same as my Creator's? How can I remain true to my marriage even in the midst of deep unhappiness? Does Jesus ever allow divorce? And if so, when is it valid? And what if I've already had an unbiblical divorce or remarriage? Is there still hope for honoring God with my life in my relationships. So this is our task for this morning. And I think Jesus will show us the way. Now some of you might feel like, hey, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm not even married, right? But this message is really for all of God's people. Most of you will someday be married. Um, and even if God gives some of you the gift of singleness, which is a beautiful thing, even if you become what Jesus commends in this passage as... A unit for the sake of the kingdom, which Jesus was, which Paul was. On a deeper level, we're all still married, beloved. Amen. We're all still married because Christ is the bridegroom Amen. and the church is the bride. He lays down his life for us and we re-reply by responding. We, we honor him with all that we are. If we don't understand marriage, then we don't understand the gospel. Amen. Theologian Christopher West says that um, he believes this imagery of the bride longing for the coming bridegroom pervades our culture in ways that people... It's just kind of coming out from the human heart, from the human experience. We were created to long for this. And he's he's always fond of quoting from and awkwardly singing... (laughs) Um, secular songs that sort of demonstrate this principle. So I'm going to do this for you here. And I, I just want us to just consider theologically what's coming from the great poet John Legend. You've heard this before, right? The bridegroom says, All of me loves all of you. And the bridegroom is gracious, right? He's gracious with our faults and peculiarities. He says, love your curves and your all your perfect imperfections. Some of you guys are like, I never thought I'd hear a preacher sing. And the bride responds, give your all to me. I give my all to you. You're my end and my beginning. It's the alpha and the omega. Even (laughs) when I lose, I'm winning. Because everyone who loses their life for his sake will truly find it. Because I give you all (laughs) all of me. And you give me all. the gospel. That's God's offer in Christ that hangs over all creation. Come, Lord Jesus, reclaim your bride. Teach us about the mystery of the gospel through the sacrament of marriage. Show us what it means, Lord, and help us to yield ourselves to you. Amen. Okay, please turn with me to Matthew 19. In the scriptures, it would be good to follow along. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. <clears throat> and looking down at Matthew 19.3, it says, The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, is there ever a justification for divorce? Jesus is actually asked this question throughout the Gospels, which isn't surprising because in the, in the cultural context, divorce was actually much more common than we think. And there was an ongoing debate between two rabbinical schools over when it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And of course, the language here is patriarchal, but elsewhere, Jesus makes the same point about women divorcing their husbands. So this is an equal opportunity rebuke. <laughs> According to the Mishnah, the so-called Oral Torah, the the tradition of the rabbis, there were two main schools at this time in Judaism um, on this topic. The more conservative school was Shammai, and and they said that a man may not divorce his wife unless he's found unchastity in her. In other words, unless she's committed adultery, unless she's been sexually immoral in some way. Whereas, Whereas the more liberal, and perhaps not surprising, more popular, school of the time was the school of Hillel, which permitted a man to divorce his wife for a variety of reasons, even for things so trivial as burning your dinner. <laughs> <laughs> One rabbi goes so far as to say that a man may divorce his wife if he's found another fairer than she. That sounds pretty, uh, that sounds pretty low, but people still do this today. Right? People still divorce their wives. Um, because they're looking for somebody younger and more attractive. Mm -hmm. It's a sad thing. But one Christian psychologist I read said that the most common logic he hears for divorce among Christians in our day is, doesn't God want me to be happy? Mm -hmm. How does being in a miserable marriage teach my children anything good? And then citing the quote that I had made earlier from C.S. Lewis, he writes, Most people, whom I counsel, that are considering divorce have not given it the same thought they would if they were considering amputating their legs. He says, would we be as confident in our assumption that, yes, there is more happiness without legs. And there is nothing worthwhile your children can learn from your effort to preserve your legs. He, he says he believes that there are times when divorce is warranted in scripture, but he also notes that people almost always underestimate the grave pain that will ensue if they go forward with the divorce. To everyone involved, both spouses, children, grandparents, extended family and friends. And he concludes, if over 50% of the adult population in America lacked legs, would we not begin to question the criteria we're using in making the decision to amputate. So what is the criteria that we're using to decide whether divorce is valid or invalid? This is what the Pharisees want to hear from Jesus. They're asking him to weigh in, to give his side on this debate. Which side are you on, Jesus? Shammai or Hillel? And on one level, which we'll discuss in a moment, Jesus actually seems to just sort of avoid the debate altogether. He goes on to something different. But on another another level, it's fair to say that Jesus' teachings on divorce and remarriage more clearly resemble the conservative rabbis. Do they not? They more clearly resemble the conservative rabbis. And I think this often surprises people that this is Jesus' view. Because on one hand, um, many of us think about Jesus uh, almost like as a modern liberal. Right? He seemed so welcoming and forgiving to sinners. He had a soft heart toward the poor. He resisted national violence against Rome. He was more inclusive toward Samaritans and to other nationalities. But on the other hand, Jesus was incredibly conservative when it came to things like his definition of marriage, divorce, adultery, sexual immorality. For example, his earliest followers repudiated the culture of abortion that existed in the Roman Empire. His earliest followers would even rescue babies out of the trash heap and raise them as their own. So with this uh, presidential election approaching, go ahead and vote. Lord, have mercy in this election. But don't try to put Jesus in your Republican or Democratic box. He doesn't fit into our morally arbitrary two-party system. And even in this passage, Jesus is less concerned with taking sides, less concerned with talking about valid or invalid reasons for divorce. He'll get to that later. But his primary message is about God's originally original intent for marriage. So the rabbis are like, "When is divorce allowed?" But Jesus spends most of his time answering the question, "What is marriage?" Right? We're oftentimes, from a philosophical standpoint, we have two words. There's there's applied ethics. That's the way that our ideas about right and wrong end up coming to bear on on the ground. But then there's also meta-ethics, the deeper questions that we have to ask in order to apply these ethics accurately. And Jesus is always wanting to have more of a meta-ethic conversation, right? We're like, how far can I go with my girlfriend or boyfriend? And Jesus is like... See, the foundational problem is lust. Mm -hmm. And that can exist in your mind and in your heart. Mm -hmm. Right? So as he always does, Jesus goes the meta-ethic. Jesus defines what marriage is by pointing back to Genesis chapter 2. To God's original intent. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So not just marriage, but our gender." is assigned by our creator. Mm -hmm. Our gender is assigned by our creator. We don't decide that. Or the purpose of our sexuality. And this is the purpose. He said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, you're starting a new nuclear family. Mm -hmm. There are new priorities that come with this. And Jesus goes on to say, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Or as the KJV famously translated it, what God has joined together, let man not put asunder. Let man not amputate. Jesus teaches that marriage was created by God in the beginning, not by man. And it's defined by the word of God, not by the oral Torah or by the laws of any land. So before there was any church, or even before he chose Israel, God gave marriage and defined marriage and gave it as a gift to all humanity. So what's Jesus' definition? It's that marriage is a one-flesh union between a male and a female, Which is established by God and is intended to be permanent. This is the standard. This is the unchanging norm established by God in the beginning of creation. Later on in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, God would introduce another crucial word for the biblical definition of marriage the word covenant. Marriage is more than a contract between a man and a woman. It's a covenant. It's a three-way relationship that involves accountability before our Creator as well. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, why tradi- that's why Christians have traditionally gotten married in a church. So it sort of like symbolically makes that point. That we're married before God, that we're accountable before God. And actually, it's really a four-way commitment. Because it also involves a commitment to each other's extended families. And to everyone who's there and to the wider society. I remember I um, uh, was hanging out with my family one day and, and a friend of, of my sister's was there and she, he was there with his girlfriend and uh, they have been dating for five years and she has um, several children that are like, sort of late elementary school and middle school age. And as we're just kind of hanging out watching a football game, somebody says, hey, when are you going to finally marry this woman? And he says, um, well, I don't need a piece of paper to tell me that I love her. Right, and, uh, and, and as you might expect, I challenged him on that. <laughs> I said, yeah, but it's not just a, about whether or not you love her. Part of marriage is actually protecting her and protecting the children. He says, explain, explain what you mean. I said, well, three years from now, if things just don't work out in your relationship and you're no, no longer together, people are going to say, hey, whatever happened to so-and-so? You're going to say, oh, it just didn't work out or whatever. And they're going to be like, oh, that's sad. And you're like, yeah, yeah, sorry, it didn't work out. Um, but if you gathered all those people and said vows before God and before all these people that I'm committed to this woman, I'm committed to her family, you know, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do we part, then three years from now, if people say, hey, whatever happened to so-and-so, and you say, I just wasn't into it anymore, they're going to think you're a jerk. <laughs> right? So I said, this marriage thing is meant to protect her. And she looked at him, I'm like, what are you going to do about that? (laughs) (laughs) So marriage is a public covenant. And it involves a spiritual and physical one flesh union between a man and a woman that's established by God. It's established by God. It says what God has joined together. In other words, only God defines marriage. Only God makes marriage. And therefore, God is the one who gets to regulate divorce. Not our own subjective sense of happiness and fulfillment. Not our sickness or health, or our riches or poverty, or our better or our worse. So, this leads us to our next question Is there ever biblical grounds for divorce? And the short answer is yes. The scriptures give two biblical reasons for divorce, but they're very specific, and we need to take great care that we understand what the scriptures do and do not teach on this issue. In the end of the sermon, I'm actually going to summarize and present 12 biblical truths about divorce and remarriage, uh, because I just want to kind of lay it all out at once. Uh, But first, let's just do a bit more wrestling with the scriptures. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 7. We saw that the Apostle Paul mentioned one valid reason for divorce and remarriage. Paul was dealing with a situation, actually, that Jesus never dealt with. In Jesus' context, Jews only married other Jews. And, of course, future Christians were forbidden to marry non-believers. To be uh, what Paul refers to as unequally yoked. And the idea is, it's like a yoke of oxen. It's like, if you're yoked to this person... And, you know, they want to go this way, and you want to go this way. It's like you're going to end up both kind of going a way you don't want to go, or eventually you're going to kind of capitulate to a way that's contrary to Christ. But because of Paul's mission to the pagan world, Paul faced situations where sometimes only one spouse would receive the gospel, and the other remained a non-believer. And Paul had to tell these believers, Hey, you're still married. Right? Just because this marriage happened before your conversion doesn't mean that you're not married. Love your spouse and try to be a light to them. That's essentially what he says. He even says that their children are holy, which is a text that I think has interesting implications for infant baptism. But I digress. <laughs> but, Paul says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Many translations uh, translate this as, the brother or sister is not bound. In other words, if you accept Christ and your non-believing spouse leaves you, you're free to divorce and remarry. You're not bound. Which verse is that, Taylor? Um, 15 verse 15. Yeah, sorry. <coughs> I cut the verse number of right here. <coughs> In other words, if you accept Christ, yes, and and your non-believing spouse leaves you, you're free to divorce and remarry, you're not bound. And the implication is that our relationship with Christ is even more important, actually, than our relationship with our spouse. Remaining true to Christ is even more important than remaining true to our spouse. And in this cultural context, whether Roman or Jewish, wherever divorce was allowed, the right to remarry was automatically assumed. It was actually a part of the um, divorce document. The Mishnah says that the essential formula in the bill of divorce is, Lo, thou art free to marry any man. If the divorce is valid, then the remarriage is valid. So for Christians, in the limited instance where divorce is valid, so is remarriage. Jesus makes this and when he talks about his reason in Matthew 19. So let's, let's turn back there and see what our Lord has to teach us. And here I'm going to ask for you to stick closely with me for the next few minutes. But if you miss something, I've made a handout in the foyer for anyone who wants to review these scriptural points um, uh, anymore. I just know there's a lot of con- content coming at, uh, coming at you, and uh, so I made this handout. It's mostly coming from the ESV Study <laughs> Bible, their, um, their essay on this, which, which I take comfort in because that's kind of a consensus document uh, for many people who believe in the scriptures. So picking up from Matthew 19, verse 7, the Pharisees said to Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give her certificate of divorce and send her away? He's saying, so in other words, why does the Old Testament seem to allow for divorce? Well, he, he's, he's assuming Jesus is forbidding it in all instances. Why? Because of the way that Jesus defined marriage. It's such a, like, stick with it, this is a spiritual covenant, this is... A, You know, and so he says, well, why why does it seem to be allowed in the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. And here the Pharisees are referring to Deuteronomy 24, which is actually the only passage in the Old Testament which talks about any allowance for divorce. It's the one passage. um, And it talks about a man writing a certificate of divorce because he's found some indecency in his wife, it says. And most Bible scholars believe the presenting issue here again is sexual immorality or adultery. But because people in Jesus' day and in our day are so eager to justify themselves and to expand the reasons for divorce, some of the rabbis marked up the text and tried to squeak in other reasons, really any reason, they actually referred to it as any cause divorce, which works a lot like our system of no-fault divorce in Florida. But Jesus says to them in verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, again back in Genesis 2, it was not so. This is a crucial verse, so let me draw up two important points. First, when Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, he doesn't mean that only hard-hearted people initiate divorce. That's not what he's saying. Uh, as we see in the next verse... Um, someone may actually be justified in initiating a divorce. His point is that because of sinful hearts which lead to the defilement of marriage, Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce. The point is is that divorce always happens as a result of sin. It always happens as a result of sin. And second, we notice that Jesus said that Moses allowed you to divorce. He allowed it in the case of adultery. He didn't command it, right? Jesus isn't requiring that people divorce their unfaithful spouses. In fact, reconciliation should always be our first option. Yes. should always be our first option that we explore. Amen. I know of actually several marriages where one partner was unfaithful, but instead of ending the marriage, the unfaithful partner repented and this couple was able to find healing through Christian community and counseling. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea was married to an adulterous woman, and he remained faithful to her. So in these cases, divorce was permissible for the offended party, but it wasn't preferable. It was permissible, but it wasn't preferable. Why? Because Jesus says, because from the beginning it was not so. Jesus always brings us back to the norm. So, you know, of course, it's not always possible for a broken marriage to be healed but when it is possible it's a beautiful thing so finally we come to verse 9 Jesus is ready to talk about applied ethics he says and I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality the Greek word here is pornea except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery Again, I want to make two points. First, notice that Jesus only gives one valid reason for divorce, which is adultery. Jesus mentioned this first in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, this is what Moses was talking about as well. So when combined with Paul's, that makes for only two valid reasons for divorce and remarriage in the whole Bible. The first is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And the second is when the marriage covenant is defiled by adultery. I hope at this point we can see why adultery would be such a serious issue. I mean, if there's this one flesh union that happens, and Paul actually says it happens whether you're married to somebody or not, that one flesh, that soul tie happens, then when you commit adultery, it's like you're bringing somebody else, a foreign person, into the marriage bed. Now, some people ask, well, what about when a woman is suffering from ongoing physical abuse? And that's a tricky situation when it comes to divorce. At some point, you wonder, is this like a matter of abandonment or whatever? But but obviously, the first thing to do is to take action, family intervention, physical separation, church discipline, court order, police action, whatever, in order to bring this abuse to an immediate halt. Actually, there's interesting. There's a manual on church discipline, a, a, a second-century church discipline manual. Uh, and listen to this sentence. It says, "If there is a man who is abusing his wife in the church, the pastor should take two stout elders and go visit that home." <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah. That's like the ecclesiastical mafia for protecting women, right? Yeah. Go and show this guy what he needs to know. Some of you are wondering, can I be that stout? (laughs) We'll talk. Second, uh, Jesus is super clear, and and we, we we have to wrestle with this. Jesus is super clear that remarriage, for any other reason, is to be considered adultery. I don't think that most of the churches I know have wrestled with the weight of Jesus' teaching here. Adultery is a serious crime throughout scriptures. It was punishable by stoning in the Old Testament. In the book of Revelation, adulterers are among those who are cast into the lake of fire on the last day. And Paul says, do not be deceived. Adulterers are among those who will not receive the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now the beautiful truth of the gospel is that there are many adulterers who repent and are given new life in Jesus, totally washed and freed of that past sin. In fact, in that very passage in 1 Corinthians 6, speaking to people who were formerly adulterers, and other notorious sinners in Corinth, Paul writes, and that is what some of you were. That's who some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to conclude this morning, as I promised, by presenting 12 biblical truths about divorce and remarriage. And again, if you miss any of these, um, I have a more detailed handout in the flyer, uh, sorry, in the foyer. Um, My purpose in reading these aloud is is not to overwhelm us with a bunch of laws. But I'm convinced that that Christians are genuinely confused on this topic. Mm -hmm. And so I want to set forth God's truth in a clear way and summarize what we've learned from God's Word, because Jesus says, when we know the truth, the truth is shall set us free. So here goes. Twelve biblical truths about divorce and remarriage. It's on the handout. You don't need to write it down. I see all of you scampering for your pens and pencils. (laughs) Actually, I don't see those. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, divorce is always the result of sin or hardness of heart. It comes about as a result of some kind of sin. Number two, when divorce is permissible... Reconciliation is often preferable. Not always preferable, but often that's the preferable option. uh, Third, divorce is permissible in the case of adultery. We learn that here in Matthew 19. Fourth, if a divorce is valid on biblical grounds, then so is the remarriage. Fifth, remarriage is biblically permissible only for the offended spouse. That's actually something we didn't talk about very much, and that, that's, that's a pretty tough thing to deal with. I, I've had people say, I've, I've, I've heard of people pastoring people in these situations, like, what, like, you know, you expect me to just kind of like not, you know, not be married, not have a sexual life the rest of my life, or whatever? Um, I think my answer in this day and age would be, isn't that what we're asking people who are same-sex attracted to do? Aren't we asking them to be faithful to chastity for biblical purposes. Six, marriages entered into prior to conversion are real marriages. They're real marriages in Scripture. Marriage came before the people of God. It was before that. And biblical principles apply before and after. (laughs) Seventh, Christians are forbidden to marry outside the faith. But if, you've already, if you're already married to an unbeliever, you should not. See, you should excuse me. You should seek to remain faithful to the marriage and to Christ. Eight, divorce is permissible if a believer is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. And if a believer is ever abandoned by someone who professes to be a believer, um, which which Paul didn't even was, like, that didn't even enter his mind that that would happen. Um, It's important that you seek pastoral counsel for that because there there might be some sort of issue there. Um, I I point you to the handout that I put back there. Um, Number nine, unless the initial divorce is for reasons of adultery or Paul's addition of abandonment, Jesus refers to all other grounds of remarriage as adultery. The church ought not to commend or perform such marriages. How, How can we do that? How could we perform a marriage that Jesus says is adultery? Number ten, wrongfully married couple, excuse me, a wrongfully married couple has committed an act of adultery. But this is important, and we didn't talk about this before, but they're not living in a perpetual state of adultery. They should repent of their past failings and receive Christ's forgiveness. It's important that we repent of things that we've done in our past, even if hey, then we're no longer you know walking in that anymore. Have we repented of things that we've done wrong in our past? And then seek grace to remain faithful to their current marriage. I mean, it's just gonna make matters worse if it's just like hey, you know, you're in a wrongful marriage. Just a, just mass divorces all over the place now. Number 11, if someone is suffering from ongoing physical abuse, action should be taken, family intervention, physical separation, church discipline, two stout elders, court (laughs) order, to bring the abuse to immediate halt. That's actually the one thing in this list that's not in the scriptures, but um, that's just common sense pastoral practice. It's commended by the wider body of Christ um, that we take that very seriously. Number 12, For widows, we also didn't talk about this, remarriage is permissible, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, though singleness may be preferable for some. May be preferable for some if they're able to handle that. So that's it, the 12 biblical truths about divorce and remarriage. This was very hard to write. (laughs) Um, This is a lot lot of information. I know that this is a sensitive, painful topic, and I just want to offer... John and myself, if you kind of have like further questions after this sermon and you're just like, I just want to talk, I want to figure out what you meant by that. I don't know if I like that or you want to kind of wrestle with the scriptures um, with us. We invite that. We invite uh, further interaction on this issue. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Help us, we pray, to live into Your creational intent for marriage, and help us as a church begin to walk in integrity in the way that we talk about divorce and remarriage. Father, I pray that You minister to hearts around this room, people who who feel great shame that that uh, that their sins have already been paid for, and You want to uh, affirm them and bless them with Your grace for people who feel comfortable. Um, but they're comfortable in a way that's contrary to your word. I pray that that you would bring your conviction and that they would repent and turn to you and get back on the path. Father, please help us as your bride. Please help us as your bride to understand the great mystery of marriage and what it says about the gospel and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.